0: Talking about it, this is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Ward. Beauty Day in the Hammer and 20 degree temperatures by the weekend. How does that feel, Hamilton? He Scott Thompson.
1: All right, Hamilton working on an Open Streets event. There's always been lots of chatter about this, and, and more so now, I guess, post-pandemic or in a pandemic. Uh, when we were event to uh, this is to allow strolling pedestrians and uh, cyclists to safely take over all four lanes of King uh, King Street East between Gage and Gore uh, pretty much I'm guessing on a Sunday at least that's what they're thinking at this point let's bring in Brian Holling uh, Brian Hollingworth director of transportation planning and parking at the city of Hamilton and with us now Brian thank you for the time I hope you're doing well
2: good afternoon uh, All right. Well. Certainly,
1: certainly. Today, like today, it makes you think of something like this. What is it you have planned? Uh, give us a little overview of what you're doing here.
2: Yeah. So, uh, what we're calling it, uh, it is the Gage to Gore Open Streets Temporary Linear Urban Park Program, and that's a that's a big word for a basically a a Sunday or Saturday street closure, uh, where the street would be turned over to cyclists and pedestrians, uh, vehiculars traffic would be diverted to other other routes and and people could uh, enjoy the street reconnect with their city um potentially shop at some businesses that are open and and just just do outdoor activity
1: so uh, I, I was reading in the article that uh, was in the spec. you were talking about how this is a learning experience. It, it, this is sort of an experiment, uh, you know, uh, a process that could be the, the foundation for for other such situations. So what is it you're trying to, what's the objective here? Uh, what are you hoping to learn from this?
2: Yeah, so um, the city does have some experience, but it dates back to the uh, 2009, 2010. Uh, we did a few open, open streets. Uh, the city has some experience with uh, uh festivals of course everyone knows about supercrawl mm-hmm. this is a little bit different and it's a little bit lower key um you know people can can enjoy it um at their own at their own pace and it's less like a, a program festival and more just an opportunity to open up the street um the the genesis uh comes from their inspiration comes from uh, bogota colombia uh who for many years have have done with a Ciclovia. Uh, it's enshrined in the culture, and, you know, we're, we're looking to try it out, uh, see how it works, see how many people show up. We're hoping that lots show up and, uh, and, and learn from there. Uh, also look at how traffic's impacted, how transit's impacted, uh, and how we, we can make it successful for all.
1: You bring up an interesting point here, Brian, because, uh, you know, and you compared it to Supercrawl, I don't know what a great event that is, but it's an event that takes over, and it's an event, and it just happens to be held on the street. What you're talking about is less event and more just allowing people to get to know the street and, and as you said, the shops and what's there.
2: Yeah, you got it. Um, perhaps the most similar event, uh, people might have seen it in Toronto or heard about it in Toronto is called Active TO, uh, where they, they, uh, close mm-hmm. some streets and allow them, people to, to walk and bike and rollerblade on it. That's kind of the model that we're envisioning here. Uh, there may be other, you know, things that we can do to draw people out, working with the BIAs, um, you know, little, little tables and stuff like that, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's more of a, a street closure than a festival.
1: And you talked about traffic. Obviously, that's part of the plan. Um, do you do you expect any issues, or is it just a case of bypassing the block?
2: Uh, well, one of the reasons why these things are are done on a Sunday because traffic's a little bit lower. People aren't rushing to get to work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we do anticipate the need to to do some traffic diversion as 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 well as transit uh, but we're also hoping the traffic's a lot less because uh you know people are out uh, yeah. arriving at the city by by walking and uh cycling
1: how has this discussion changed uh during a pandemic brian how uh, maybe you know between at the beginning of, of all of this or before a pandemic what's the difference between then and now
2: well i think a lot of these things started um uh regaining um popularity through the pandemic and people realize the benefits you know not everyone has access to a a nearby park or a backyard uh, so we're realizing that that we need to provide others other spaces for people to to get out and and recreate so I think the the pandemic certainly um, spurred it on um, but I think even regardless uh, we would think about doing this
1: and what about other uh, other streets, other parts of the city, or is this, uh, you know, the King Street East between Gage and Gore, that's the first uh, of this sort of program, uh, and then you're going to go from there?
2: Yeah, uh, for sure, we'll learn from this, and I should mention that, you know, another attraction for, of this corridor is, it is our future LRT corridor, so, yeah. um, you know, we're getting people used to the idea of street closures in advance of construction, um, learning how... Uh, people and vehicles uh, uh, respond to that. So there, there's a real benefit there. But, you know, if it's successful, we might, might expand it to, to some other major streets. But we're, we're trying to um, manage expectations a little bit. Uh, this isn't something that we're going to do in, in May or June. It's going to take a little while to plan. So we're looking uh, towards the latter part of the summer.
1: That's a great idea, Brian, though, when you think about it, eh? You know, I mean, okay, let's figure out how to close down a street, and then when you have to do that for other reasons, you've got a plan set up. That's, uh, there's your city planning. And this is probably going to happen in August. We have no date yet?
2: We don't have a specific date, probably in August um, or early September.
1: All right, Brian Hollingworth with us, Director of Transportation Planning and Parking at the City of Hamilton, talking about an open streets concept for a a day in August uh, Sunday, uh, King Street East between Gage and Gore Park. Sounds pretty cool, Brian. Thanks for the time. Good luck.
2: Thank you very much. Take
1: care. Remember last week or, or so, we were talking uh, about the, the lead-up to Russia's Victory Day uh, parade and celeb- uh, celebration and stuff, and many thought that there would be some sort of huge monumental event in order to make a statement, so Putin would have a statement uh, during this event, and it doesn't seem to have really made that sort of mark and uh, kind of a lower-key lower, lower key affair, I guess, than, than most thought. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Arnold Arn Kozlenko, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program at Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History at Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Arn, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on Putin's speech today, the Victoria, or sorry, the Victory Day uh, speech, and and was it what you thought it was or would be?
3: Well, it's a, that's a great question. I, I didn't actually think it would be um, you know the occasion for a major speech, mostly because the military uh, components of his plans are far from complete. And as I think most people are quick to point out he's actually nowhere near uh, the objectives that he thought he would have by May 9th. So I, I didn't expect uh, you know, a celebratory, um, spirit to the speech. I did kind of expect, uh, him to announce a ramping up of operations born of his frustrations, uh, and born of the fact that obviously the new military focus is on, on the Donbass itself. Um, so I, I did expect some sort of reference to that, and, and he did not deliver on that either. It was, uh, kind of an unremarkable speech. Uh, but of course, pundits are now kicking in and pointing out to the fact that what he didn't say is as important as anything he did. Uh, And that his own body language and the sort of relative tone that he carried was um, was, you know, uh, pretty much that of a man who is frustrated and alienated more than he thought he would be come May 9th.
1: And with that respect, do you think he owned the room here? Do you think he he whipped up the base, as they say? No, I, I actually
3: don't think that. This was a, a, to a large degree for show. It was for domestic consumption. It was for his own pageantry and pomp. He has to do that. It's, it's part mm-hmm. of his makeup as a, as a dictator. Um, you know, May 9th is a, is a pretty important uh, occasion in, in, uh, in Russian history and in former Soviet history, Ukraine as well, of course, instrumental in the defeat of the Nazis in, in World War II. Uh, but Putin has made it really about him. I mean, people often think this has been celebrated, you know, um, um, every year since 1945. That's actually not the case. Under the Soviet Union, May 9th was uh, occasionally commemorated. It was commemorated on local levels more than on a national level. It was only revised in 1995 by uh, the Yeltsin government, and Putin has made it his own kind of showcase. And it's, it's become very much about him. Uh, and today, I think there was nothing different. He, he had a, a, a loyal base there, as one would presume, um, and he kept his speeches mostly to this you know, uh, really bizarre justification of why there's a military operation in Ukraine, but didn't announce anything substantial in terms of, uh, of changes to the war or, um, you know, even in, in a lot of ways, the threats that he had uh, routinely made uh, recently against the West were also absent from the speech. So I, I, I can see why some commentators, at least in, 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 uh, you know, Russian language are, are starting to say, well, he looks kind of, uh, Well, he looked rather subdued in a lot of ways. He looked a bit nervous, as a matter of fact, having not achieved anything that he thought he would by May 9th.
1: What about uh, support in Russia uh, for him amongst the citizenry? We've heard that that was still strong. Is it still strong? Are they getting that message from this speech? Yeah,
3: that is the magical question. I don't know that anybody actually knows the answers to that question. And, and and in part, it's because obviously, there's a very tight grip by the government on any media, as you know, uh, independent media has been entirely shut down. Um, and things like the parade itself are obviously geared towards the loyal uh, people show up either out of genuine conviction or the desire to appear there, right, so that they don't fall, uh, you know, uh, fall under the regime's boot, as it were. Uh, but it's hard to gauge whether that translates into the kind of support that that I think you're alluding to, right? Would I send my sons to fight and die? Uh, I don't know that there is as much support as we sometimes imagine. And of course, the longer this war goes, and the more bodies uh, are counted for, Russian military losses are much higher than they're acknowledging. And the more the cost the average Russian citizen, which is getting steep indeed. Uh, The more that comes in, it's, uh, you know, I don't think anybody confidently can say the Russian population is behind this all the way. So that's the question. Are are the Russian people, by and large, um, at any stage uh, in their own development where they would challenge uh, the government over this war? Some, Some experts say, yeah, they say the longer this goes, the more uh, damage inflicted on the Russian populace. The likelihood of them rising up in some fashion is is there. Uh, but you are talking about a man who's well entrenched in power, who's clearly merciless yeah. when it comes to that power. So it's really difficult to gauge, you know, how many and who and at what stage that anti-war movement exists.
1: Rather than um, that celebration, rather than you know that rallying of the troops, does this parade actually draw attention to the reality of this and that it's not going as smoothly and uh, you know as he originally predicted? Obviously,
3: yeah, I think it does from a Western vantage point for sure. The fact that there were no major announcements or threats, for that matter, I, I think most experts expected one or both. Right, a new announcement in the war uh, or more threats. That didn't materialize. So it, it indicates to me that Putin, um, is to some degree licking his wounds and to some degree, yeah, maybe nervous is the word, or at least concerned, uh, about his military and the performance. There's no way back for him, right? I think we need to acknowledge that. It's not like even with all the spinning you can have, um, that there's a way back from, from this war that's going to end in his, you know, glorification, right? That's long gone. Um, so that by itself was revealing. How revealing it is the russian public is again back to this question of we just don't know the answer but i think most you know smart russians russians are smart people despite what sometimes we we think of of them through portrayals um they've got to be asking those questions right The special military operation has not concluded uh and it's been several months now and and so the questions as to why are starting to loom and news makes its way in right even with a strict government control there are lots of expatriate russians who are Uh, giving information about Western media portrayals, I'm sure there are questions starting to arise, maybe within his own government itself. So today was a lot about show. It was a very pageant-oriented... You notice that he focused almost exclusively on historical references. He kind of dodged the issue of the contemporary altogether. And drew parallels to, uh, you know, his military operation, uh, parallel with uh, defeating the Nazis in World War II, which is indicative that he doesn't have much of a strategy right now other than to hold the line.
1: We got less than a minute here, left arm. But I wanted to ask you. Obviously, Justin Trudeau is, and other world leaders, including uh, First Lady Biden, is over there uh, this weekend, surrounding Zelensky as a show of support. How important is that? Uh, obviously, a, a, a pretty great show from from the allies and such. But how how would Putin interpret that if, well, he's having his parade, uh, Zelensky's sort of having his own celebration?
3: Yeah, this is this is off obviously political opportunism by Western leaders on the one hand, as to, to for their of own domestic is, yeah. consensus and. Their desire to end up on the right side of history, as it's as it often referred to. Um, for Zelensky, it means a great deal. It does. I mean, it's not the exact equivalent of major military aid, uh, but it certainly helps in the moral uh, battle. Uh, and it is absolutely aimed at insulting uh, and alienating uh, Putin even further. But I think Western leaders have reached the conclusion that short of their actual military intervention, the sides are drawn. There's there's no sense holding back at this stage your unequivocal support, rhetorical or otherwise for Ukraine. Uh, and that is timed. So there's no question that Trudeau and other people, and I don't know about Trudeau himself, but most other people's visits are timed, in accordance with, you know, demonstrable acts towards Russia. No better date than May 9th to do that.
1: Dr. Arne Kislenko with us, International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto and Department of History at Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fascinating. Thanks so much for the discussion, Arne. Be well. Thank you. You too.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 Chml.
1: Probably as long as I've been doing, uh, uh, or I've been at Chml, whatever show I'm doing. That you know, we've been talking about the Falcons, and and I remember chatting when the the first time this happened, when all of a sudden uh, birds started nesting on. Uh, at the Sheridan and various other uh, high-rise places downtown. And we st- we've we started watching, obviously, uh, well, there's a camera on the ledge of the Sheridan in downtown Hamilton. And f- for years, I guess it was Lily that uh, kept us entertained and and, and repopulated the, the Falcon world, as they say. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know if you remember, we were, we were chatting and, and Lily, unfortunately, passed away. And it wasn't long before uh, McGeever took over. And and not only for Lily, but rented the uh, apartment left behind, it seems. And just in time for Mother's Day, we've got a family that's there. And now the Falcon Watch team is uh, is looking for volunteers to keep an eye on this family. Let's bring in Krista Jackson, Falcon Watch coordinator and is with us now. Krista, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
4: I'm doing good. Thank you for having us.
1: I guess I guess congratulations are in order here.
4: Yes, we're very excited, uh, the Falcon Watch family. We've been uh, on pins and needles watching as the eggs are laid and the turf wars that had happened previously before the two settled in. And it's kind of nice for us. It's always sad when we do have um, new parent falcons come in. But this time it's kind of bittersweet um, because McKeever, uh, that is the female that came this year a little background on her. She's from Windsor, Ontario, and she was hatched back in 2019. And she is um, named in honor of McKay Keever, who was the person that started the Owl Foundation in Vineland. And the Owl Foundation is one of the places that we send the Falcons if there's ever a problem and they need medical care. The uh, father um is judson who was fledged in 2018 in buffalo new york and he's actually one of his parents um was fledged in hamilton from our reigning madam x and surge um so it's kind of nice to have it back it's like a grandson
1: how do you know Um, all of this how would you how do you know which one is which who's who in, in all of this
4: Well, you know, as you said earlier in the introduction, the cameras are very great to us. Um, They are able to take pictures. um, I believe it's every 10 seconds that they snap it. And we can zoom in sometimes and be able to read the banding. But any time a bird, uh, sorry, a peregrine falcon is banded in Canada, um, they're, they're protected when they go into the States and stuff. So a lot of the places when they're watched falcons such as in Hamilton, when they are young, they're um, they get banded and that protects them. And it also gives them an ID number. So then when one comes up, there is a place where you can report it. So you can actually backtrack and find out where our chicks go and when they've been surfaced, if they, you know, land and they're somewhere in the wild where it's not watched then we won't know so sometimes they disappear and you just you know that they're alive and well um and other times they uh end up in different nests with cameras so you can watch them um i believe we actually have um pig from um syracuse new york so you know they're definitely out there um i do know that the uh facebook page there is one that follows multiple falcons and then there's one that's um, with us, and they focus on our falcons. So it's nice to be able to see where they end up. Um, you don't always know, but when you do know, it's pretty cool to have the history, especially in this case where it bounces back, you know. Just, like a, just like a chip,
1: uh, if you had a chip in your pet, your dog or something like that. Uh, and, and I remember that does, someone does go down and somehow tag them, right? The chicks?
4: That is correct. We were, And we're ha- how does
1: that happen again? Them? remind us uh, of that exercise
4: so yeah no um what happens is um it's a very narrow window in which you have to do it the the chick's legs have to be fully grown and strong enough that they will hold um the tagging system but they can't be fully developed otherwise you know good luck at getting them <laughs> um yeah. so it's a very it's your job
1: window. it's your job to put the band on the falcon good luck
4: <laughs> yeah pr- pretty much that we've um always have the same people doing it uh and they've been doing it for a number of years but there's a small group of us that go up and like for example when we did it in the last hatching um i had um a kind of a net thing that i would wave in the air and that's just to distract the parents and keep them right. away from coming back to protect the children and we uh have the the guys repel from the mechanical um, room roof down to the nest ledge. And then they've got a very, it's a soft kind of like a dog crate, but it's soft shelled and they put the chicks in there and they've got their own little compartment. So they're very snug and it's very safe. It's zippered up, you know, all precautions are taken and then they bring it over to the roof. Then we take them inside and there's a little room where we do it. So at that point, um, they will check to see the um, if there's any health issues that may be apparent. Um, sometimes it's to do with um, neurological problems. They'll be able to sometimes know right away. Other times it could just be like um, some kind of virus for them. And it's happened before where they've done it and they can treat them and then they're replaced in the nest after they've been banded we weigh them to make sure they're healthy weight we check if they're females males we give them their id um numbers and then that's how we're able to keep track of them and then just to make it easier for the volunteers we put tape on them different color tape so uh like the last banding we had white hern and griffin and so one was yellow and one was red it's just simply for ease for when we're doing Mm. it we're iding them as they fly you're not going to be able to read the tag but you can see red tape or yellow tape that's on the actual tagging so (laughs) and eventually that will fall off so it doesn't harm them at all it just makes it easier for us to be able to track um that we know where all the falcons are like the chicks because that's that's our main concern and especially like this year we're going to have four of them So it can be pretty hard if you're not able to identify which chick is which to know if you're missing one or if you've got them all.
1: All right. So if we want to look at their progress, what do we do Krista?
4: So there are several ways now that you're able to follow the progress of them. There's always the website. If you just Google um, Hamilton Falcon, watch it's uh, falcons.hamiltonnature.org that has the video feed where you can watch it. And there's a news feed where you can just click on it and um charles who runs our website he always does very good updates for us so everyone knows what's going on uh we are on uh facebook as well there is an official site and of course there's instagram and we do have mm. email that's on everything can be found on the website if you're interested right. in getting a hold of us
1: that is and fabulous if anyone it- wants
4: to volunteer.
1: Oh, yeah, because you're looking for volunteers to monitor them. So, again, all of the information on the website, all you have to do is Google Falcon Watch, uh, Hamilton Falcon Watch, and you'll get to where you need to be. Krista Jackson with us, Falcon Watch coordinator. The family's back at the Sheridan Hotel downtown Hamilton. That's great to see. Good luck, Krista.
4: Thank you so much. Have a great day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk 900. CXMW.
1: You might remember a while back we were talking to uh, Ron Foxcroft. You know. <laughs> You know who that guy is, don't you? Uh, Fox 40, you know, whatever. And, uh, and Fluke Transport, and, and, you know, he's a huge Hamiltonian and he's a huge supporter of the city. He's always looking for something to do to help somebody or help, help people in some way. And he was, he was chatting, we we're interviewing him about something else, I think. And he was chatting about how he had a meeting coming up with, uh, Max Kerman from the R. And then he, he couldn't tell us anything about it, but it was something to do with basketball, and that was it. And he really, you know, we were waiting for the, you know, some sort of hint or whatever. And he's just waited. It's all, you'll know in a minute, in a bit. And sure enough, uh, the details are now getting out and it involves Woodlands Park basketball court. It's going to be getting an upgrade or a glow up as they're calling it. Let's bring in your counselor for Ward three, Rinder Nan, city of Hamilton and with us now. Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: I'm doing good, how are you
1: i'm doing very good, thanks. so tell us about this project and and uh, well, what can you tell us about it what's happening here?
5: Yeah, I can tell you about it um, so it's a really exciting we <laughs> I called it a glow up, which you know essentially means an upgrade to the existing multi court at Woodlands park, and what we 're going to see is professional grade backboards and hoops we're going to see an acrylic resurfacing of the ground uh, with a brighter palette with lots of color and splash Uh, we're definitely going to see new lighting in order to enable basketball play to go in go on after dusk and new seating because with a court like that there's going to be a lot more people going to want to gather and watch the games go down
1: man that sounds amazing how did this all come about
5: yeah, it was uh, uh, so. Max Kerman <laughs> called me also, similar to I guess his chat with Ron, uh, and said that he had an idea. And I think this kind of speaks to the es- uh, you know essence of who the Arkells are as a yeah. not only a band but also their ongoing contributions to the community. Right? They're proud Hamiltonians, mm-hmm. and they're constantly using their platform to leverage good in the community. And so, yeah, he gave me a call and said that he's really interested in good public spaces. The band has a love for basketball also and uh, reached out to my office and said, Counselor, are there any courts that we could work with to to make it happen? And um, yeah, I was happy to hear and uh, we've been working together since January to make it happen. So that's so kind cool. of cool. That... that secrecy piece, right, was also like, Counselor, we can't talk about it. So, But at the same time, given the tight timeline, we wanted to get this thing done by this summer and definitely in lead up to their concert coming up. Um, I moved some more three dollars temporarily to get the vent, you know, vendors going, and all the mm-hmm. work's kind of pre-planned. Yeah,
1: because yeah, well, the question I was going to ask was, okay, so people call you, <laughs> as I'm sure they do a lot, counselor, and say, "I uh-huh. got a great idea. I got a great idea. Let's do this." Uh-huh. And I'm sure there's lots of great ideas. How difficult is it to take it from uh, max to the court to make it happen?
5: Well, the difference here is Max is like, not just this is an idea. How do we make it happen? He's like, this is the idea, and I'm going to raise the funds to make it happen. I don't want to do this on taxpayers' dollars. Uh, The Arkells want to raise the funds with partners and make it happen, in which case, you know, they asked for the specs of how much would this cost, at which point the city staff responded, and then they were like, all right, they got their marching orders and knew what they needed to work with in terms of their, their fundraising target
1: what's great here Rinder, is to see how quickly everybody moved together and make and made it happen because lots of times great ideas get lost in the sauce
5: absolutely it it's been wonderful and also just to think about all the families there was this dad that reached out on social media after he saw my post on it on friday and he said you know me and my boys are out there every weekend playing basketball we are so excited that, you're, that you and the RKLs are going to invest in this space. We're already proud to be playing there. They're, they're saying like, they have such a deeper sense of pride. Uh, and that's what this is all about, right? Showing some love and respect to our community and letting neighborhoods know that have historically felt underinvested in that they deserve beautiful things too.
1: And, you know, some of the support, as we were talking about from Foxcroft, uh, even the Raptors head coach, uh, Super Van, Van. <laughs> And so it, it's great to see everybody rallying around projects like this.
5: Yeah. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, it's my hope yeah. that we see many more of these, you know, the the compassion that was there in early phases of COVID-19 uh, was very much about supporting your neighbor and very much that individual helping each other out. Now, I think at this stage of the pandemic, part of the recovery process has to be us coming together and making things happen and uh, moving mm. as quickly and as nimbly as we can when we've got such expertise around the table so yeah that's a good point you know
1: we we've certainly become here's the word nimble since all of this so now if we can make this really work uh out of a pandemic that'd be even great so when is this all when is it all uh when's the unveiling in in the first shot to be thrown
5: the launch the week of june 25th and we're just working out the details on that and as soon as uh it's finalized we'll definitely share the good information with you and that's
1: Of course, all around uh, the big show coming up uh, with the Arkells at Tim Hortons Field, which is going to be another great blowout. A great idea. Way to see it through. Rinder Dan with us, counselor for Ward 3, City of Hamilton. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
5: My pleasure. You take care.
1: Shortwave Radio is being used as a means to combat Russian propaganda. Now, during the Second World War, this was massive. And uh, I remember when I first started my radio career and I went to work at my very first big, you know, uh, CHR contemporary hit radio station. And this is when they still had uh, music on AM. And 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 they were doing hit radio. And one of the liners, you know, the big bar, 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 all hit radio. Uh, one of the th- liners that they had was they would tell you what the station was, and then they would say, uh, "And heard around the world," and then they'd give the shortwave uh, frequency and such. And I thought, wow. Even though shortwave was so out of date at that point, it it felt good. And now, of course, it's, you know, 900 chml streamed around the world, uh, you know, as a result of technology and the internet as opposed to shortwave. But because there's so much hacking going on, and 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 we're in a uh, there's technology there's there's technology warfare as much as the what we're seeing going on uh, on the front lines. They're going back to shortwave radio as a main as a means to to get the message through and combat the propaganda. Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto uh, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and is with us now good timing and Jeff thanks for the time I hope you're well
6: yes I am I hope you are as well
1: Man, everything's breaking loose here at once so yeah. your thoughts on going back to shortwave radio obviously the technology is being hacked why is shortwave the way to go here
6: well a couple of things one is that um, the people who are in charge of our technical uh, abilities uh, usually, <laughs> usually kids with green hair. Mm-hmm. Um, we, they have a sense of what is acceptable now. That is terrific, and I'm I'm appreciative of their knowledge. However, <laughs> they often uh, think so much in terms of what they think is cutting edge that they may not be thinking of what uh, the users, the end users considered to be acceptable uh, technical quality. And I think in Eastern Europe, my guess is, and I'm pretty sure I'm okay saying this, that maybe the technology isn't quite as advanced as it is in other parts of the world. Mm. And that means that maybe a lot more people still have hung on to their shortwave radios, which in many cases, for example, in Russia, might have once been considered to be illegal um, so that these machines are kind of kept aside or kept hidden, but that they're they are there. And in this propaganda war that we are in now with Russia uh, dealing with Ukraine, uh, the idea of still sending out a signal on short wave probably captures a lot more audience than, uh, the the people who are so technologically adept may be prepared to to realize. I mean, one of the things that I noticed in, uh, in when I taught at out at Scarborough that a lot of the students have access to probably a pretty simple um, level of technology, internet accessible, but probably several generations back. Um, And when I would suggest to the IT guys, and they were terrific, I'm not taking anything away from them, that maybe we need to be more cognizant of the fact that many of the students are in uh, either poorer circumstances or they're immigrant families, or um, they have access to a computer maybe only for a couple of hours a day and probably late at night. We need to adapt our service to these students to understand the exact level of technology that they they live in. Um, And I was always told, yes, we need to be less sophisticated in some ways uh, than we are now in order to serve uh, a complicated student uh, body. And and I think that what's happened in some uh, national broadcasters, like Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio France, and the BBC, of course, they understand that not everyone has state-of-the-art PCs or Macs, uh, especially in Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe. So they've returned to shortwave because that's where the audience is. So this is perhaps
1: less about hacking, less about the technology, but reaching those that don't necessarily have it or have access to
6: it. I think that's it. And I think that... That especially in the BBC World Service, they understand the reach of their of their programming and who listens to the World Service and on what platforms, what technology uh, is being applied. So, for example, I was uh, I was just at uh, Massey College today talking to a journalist from Afghanistan who says, "Yeah, of course, we use all sorts of technology, but don't tell me." that someone who lives in the back of beyond in Afghanistan has access to a Apple Macintosh. He, has a, he or she, mostly he, I guess, has access to a much more or less, let's say, less sophisticated level of technology. And so in order for us to get the message out there, we have to understand Who's using what technology and how they are using it, and and we the we the so-called sophisticated providers here in the West, we need to understand that a little a little better.
1: What about getting the signal there? Uh, can they stop that? Scramble it? Do any you know? Is it, or is it still like the old days?
6: Well, that's a good question because in the during the Cold War, the uh, the Soviets. Would scramble shortwave uh, signals. Yeah. Uh, sometimes effectively, sometimes less effectively, but usually the the signal got through some way. And there are ways of uh, there's technology available to block the blockers, as it were. So I'm sure that uh, people who are thinking about these things in uh, Washington and London and other places uh, know very well how to do that.
1: Fascinating discussion. Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, shortwave radio like World War II being used as a means to combat Russian propaganda and get the message through. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Vancouver gas prices today, 222 a liter, Point 0.9, 220, uh, 222 a liter, Point 0.9, in Vancouver today. Uh, it's one thing to see gas prices go up. It's one thing to see them go up and up and up and up and up and up several times a week and by several cents a liter, which seems to be the norm here. Because, of course, there's a huge demand and no production because we shut ours down centuries ago. Uh, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. Uh, but how does this affect? I mean, you know, obviously inflation is up. We know that. Uh, you know that. As soon as you go to the grocery store, you know that. You go to the gas pump, you know that. But at what point does this start having a massive impact, uh, not only on you, but what you're doing moving forward? In other words, we all wanted to get out. Couldn't wait to get out after the pandemic, go to a restaurant. You know, my wife and I trying to, you know, uh, support the local businesses and such. And then you get there and you go, holy jumping. I'm, wow, prices have gone up. Everything's gone up. And it's no different for for the hospitality industry who have been hurting for the last two years. How is this all affecting the average family? Let's bring in Don Fox, Fox Group, Private Wealth Management, IG, and, of course, uh, host of the Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning. And he's with us now. Don,
7: thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. I'm doing great. Yourself?
1: I'm doing good. So, Don, I mean, we certainly all have been, you know, talking inflation. It's it's certainly the number one issue now with most Canadians, housing, inflation, high costs of some sort. And you know, we do see things go up from time to time. We know we're going to get jumps in this and that. But at this point, once we're seeing gas hit like 2.22 a liter in uh in Vancouver, for example, when does that start having a real impact in the sense that people just don't go out? They don't they they don't travel. They don't they're going to put it in
7: park. Uh, yeah, it could happen anytime soon. You know, if you're, you know, listening to s- certain clients of mine, they, you know, how much they travel. Now the traveling part um, is is happening a lot more now. People driving mm-hmm. to work. You, you know, you look at the highways; they're full. There's traffic jams. So it, before, they're doing a lot of Zoom calls. If you could, like we're doing right now, for that matter. And you know, you didn't really matter that much about gas prices as much. And <laughs> weirdly enough, they were quite low at the time. But now people are back on the roads and the gas prices literally have doubled in about a year mm. and yeah it hurts so if you're looking at say for some people it's an extra hundred dollars a week well that's going to have an impact on the discretionary spending and things such as restaurants and things that you have choices to make you know vacations yeah uh, what, whatever it might be those the ones that you have a choice on whether you spend money or don't spend money they'll have an impact on those decisions
1: And it was interesting, I was watching a thing on the news on this, and there's our old buddy Ron Foxcroft on there, and they're interviewing him because, obviously, Fluke Transport, he's in the transportation business, and all of this gets passed on, but as he pointed out, it doesn't, because the price goes up faster than the contracts are renewed, so this affects the whole supply
7: chain. It does. And then you start to see, you know, like Ron Foxtrot, they got a contract, but, you know, they they may lose money on that particular one because they didn't price it high enough for the increase in gas. And you're, you're going to find it even say as golf courses, people have to cut their fairways and and greens. And therefore, you know, will they be able to, you know, support it with a certain greens fee cost? So it affects almost everything. It's amazing until we get more, solar or electric power or what have you once we've made that full transition but that's for many many years to come so at this time being absolutely it's going to have an impact and for the average consumer it's just another piece out of their budget and gas you're spending on gas so you know maybe you got to look at alternatives uh, talk to your employer maybe you can work three days a week um, two days at home And there has a bit of a trial run with that pandemic. People were able to stay home. So you know, maybe a hybrid method will work. Maybe you start carpooling again. Or back to the go train it's uh it, you know people have gotten away from the go train because of the pandemic and maybe they start using yeah. it a lot more
1: you know you bring up an interesting point here too don in the sense that you know we've all been talking about the hybrid models and going back to work and what that's going to look like rick's been running a special on that uh, all week so in, in the mornings and such but you know now you know, you're factoring in the time and, and balancing the the kids and all this now it's like well, gee whiz, it costs me more to go to work nowadays. <laughs> so that's going to factor in as well, just with gas.
7: Yes, it's just another piece of the whole puzzle. And whether it's gas, this one hits you in the face more because they have big giant signs telling you what the price is in two twenty two yeah. point yeah. nine, as you mentioned. It really hits you in the face. But you know, the ones that don't is the grocery store, and you look at a price of, you know, say beef or or what have you. Those prices have gone up tremendously over the last couple of years too. And, you know, this whole Ukraine war, uh, you know, the wheat shortages. Yeah. So there's a trickle down on almost all factors that people do every day. But this one, like you said, it's this is the barometer. Gas prices is a barometer for inflation, and this one definitely hits home.
1: All right, Don Fox with us, Fox Group, Private Wealth Management at IG, and, of course, uh, planning your financial future every Saturday morning. We'll chat with you then, Don. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Fill up
7: if you can. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <Carl>, you too. <laughs> Scott Thompson isn't satisfied
0: with an answer. He'll
5: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CHML.
1: All right, in case you didn't know, we're in the middle of an election campaign provincially. (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, we remember when the federal uh, uh, election came in the middle of the pandemic, and, and the prime minister called that, and people weren't really interested then because they're in the middle of a pandemic. Now I think they're so busy coming out of this that I'm not sure there's any more interest here. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. How do we feel about this election in Ontario? Is it time? Are we interested, or are we... Are we just, you know, how do we feel
8: about this election, you think? I, I think people, people are not interested. I do think, uh, I mean, looking at a lot of the polling numbers, tell me that people, they're not committed completely. You know, they're, they're holding open. They may be in favor of somebody, but they sort of say, well, it may change by the time I cast my ballot. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of volatility out there in terms of what people may finally do at the end. And so it's, you know, it's it's a, a bit hard to predict at this point who's going to wind up on top.
1: Uh, the Ontario Liberals released their fully-costed cl- uh, program, say they're going to, uh, if they have to, t- uh, tap into the contingency fund in order to make this work. Uh, your thoughts on, on this platform and it being costed and such?
8: Well, I think the, the, the Liberals will, I mean, given what I've seen, if they follow through on this, um, on most of it anyways... Uh, there's, they're going to have a lot of money to play around with. And the reason why they're going to have a lot of money to play around with is because Ford is going to leave them a lot of money if he is defeated. Now, what Ford's been able to do is he's he's dealt with the biggest financial problem that any government has, and that is paying their, their government workers. And so what he decided to do is he passed the, has a bill that he pa- had passed that gives the workers 1% a year now we all know that inflation is going six to seven percent a year and we also know that when you have inflation uh... generally the, the the tax money uh... matches the amount of inflation so uh... the basically the the government's paying people one percent a year and but the inflation six or seven percent a year that that's a lot of money and then you also, in the case of the liberals, they also have two uh, tax increases they have in there. One is, for, and I don't know how much it's, that's going to bring in. I haven't seen the exact number, but they do have two tax increases. One is that for every all the big corporations that are making over a billion dollars a year, uh, the money over a billion dollars a year will have, a, will have an extra tax on top of them. And also for people who make... Uh, uh, half a million dollars or more a year. The money after half a million also will have a special surtax on it. So there's two of those. And then what has probably gotten some, also some uh, attention, is that the uh, Duca says he's going to be able to get uh, maybe another couple of billion dollars out of the federal government for daycare. Well, that may or may not happen, but he's he's looking he's looking for ways to, to 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 have even more money. So, although he's promises to spend a lot of money, he also has a lot of money to spend. So, it's uh, you know it's it's hard to tell what's going to happen four years from now. But I think uh, I I you know I think he it's he ba- he has he has you know his promises probably are very attractive, but they're also have some money behind them if you count the county reserves and the uh, a- additional tax money coming in. I
1: remember we, and I love talking to pollsters and, and, and the survey companies and, su- and such, especially during this global pandemic, because it, it's just been fascinating to watch engage the 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 heartbeat of, of the country uh, or province or whatever. And, you know, if you go back to past elections and you say, what are your top five issues? A lot of it is really social issues or were in the past. A lot on climate change, a lot on, on, mm-hmm. on other social Issues, whereas now it's very much pivoted and it's cost of living, affordability, mm-hmm. housing. I mean, health care is still a major uh, situation, but it's more economic issues and less mm-hmm. social uh, issues. So, how do you run this election campaign different from the last one?
8: Well, I mean, uh, everybody, there, there's a lot of promises out there to make for affordability that all three parties have said we're doing things that is going to basically, for most of the people, uh, is going to reduce your costs. Okay, now, so, that, that's, that, so that then what the voters have to do is look at those three sets of promises. And it's not easy to figure out how much that's going to be, but there are different, different kind of voters are attracted to certain things. So if, uh, if you see uh, one of the parties promising a lot to seniors, then you probably think, oh, the seniors are going to be attracted by that. There's other things that, you know, like daycare, well, that's going to be the young married couples, you know, the ones in their 30s and 40s, maybe upper 20s. So they got to, they, they're going to have much less expense in that. If, you, um, if you're the type of person who can take mass transit, you're going to like uh, Del Duca's promise that this year and next year, you're going to be able to ride uh, on mass transit for $1. Uh, let me ask you this, Henry, practice. let me
1: ask you this, because, you know, we always know that the right is more about business. The left is more about right. handing stuff out again, post pandemic. Do people want free stuff? Do they want food or do they want the ability to feed themselves and i think that's where we are is is that you want more stuff handed out and here you are with your hands out or instead you want opportunity because again is this about giving people so they can survive we've got your back or is this about let's move forward with this let's get something done let's 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 have something to show for this
8: yeah well, in terms of the food, you know, there's not much the government can do about that. But what No, but I
1: mean, I'm not talking about prices. You know, my point is the old adage, instead of giving somebody fish, you give them the fishing rod and teach them how to fish. Yeah. Again, is this about opportunity or is it about just taking care of us?
8: Well, you know, there, there's certainly some people view the present situation as opportunity. We know that. The labor market, especially for private, uh, yeah. you know, private industry and a lot of private entities are very good. There's a lot of people who are quitting their jobs and are going to be, you know, higher paying jobs. Or if they're staying in their job, they're going to their, you know, boss and they're saying, hey, you know, uh, I need more money. If I don't get mm-hmm. it, I'm going to I'm walk down the street and see if I can get some more. And so, yeah, I mean, people, people obviously want more money. Uh, they got to look at their budget. Remember, the budget is always too two parts i mean it's what you want to spend and how much money you're going to have to do that and if the government has some programs that you say aha is really going to reduce my uh, the cost of things for me then then i like that like that you know so you that's so people see you know different parties budgets in different ways because it depends you know on where your own home family budget is and if you if you have a very healthy family and you don't need much medicare medical care if the government yeah. promises you better Medicare and that are gonna, you know, do, do all, you know, reach the back, uh, the all the uh, delayed surgeries and have them done, and you look around and say nobody in my family is gonna have surgery now or yeah. next four years. Well, that that's a promise you don't really care much about, unless you got parents or grandparents mm. in surgery. But uh, so yeah, so it's uh, p- people people will make a complex. Uh, Decision here, and I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go. But I mean, all three parties have have interesting promises.
2: Henry
1: Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the Ontario election and where we are at this stage of the campaign. As always, Henry, thanks for the time. Be
8: well. Okay, good talking to you, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: We've been talking about uh, high gas prices. Uh, two twenty two. Two twenty two point nine uh in Vancouver <laughs> think about it. 222 a liter point 0.9 uh in Vancouver and you know I think you know people realize gas goes up you know but to have it go up virtually every week it seems several times a week and then several cents each time is really what is killing people. And it's, it's you know, you have to think those that have to drive, those that have businesses that require a fleet, uh, how much this is driving the cost of everything up when we hear about supply chain issues. Let's bring in Ron Foxcroft, Canadian businessman, Fox 40, uh, Fox 40 Whistle, 40 Ways of the Fox, Fluke Transport. He is with us now. Ron, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
9: We're doing well, except for the price of diesel fuel. Uh, Scott, I know it probably costs you when you pull into your friendly gas station north of a hundred dollars to fill up your car. Well, if you want to pull in a fluke truck once a week, and we have about 125 fluke trucks, it costs about four or five thousand dollars to fill the truck, depending on the miles and whether you have one or two tanks and the miles that you run. So it's um, I I wish Dan McTague. I've been wishing he was wrong since January. Dan Hmm. McTague is never wrong. We're setting all kinds of records on the price of diesel fuel, all going the wrong way.
1: And what is diesel now compared to regular gas?
9: Oh, it's about two twenty, about two twenty a a liter, and uh, I think gas is running around two dollars and. I understand that we have to button our uh, seatbelt fasten our seatbelts because it's going to go up. And you know, uh this uh, this is going to have quite an effect on the consumer because at Fluke, we're 100 years old, we truck groceries and anything that goes into a grocery store or a big box store and um it it uh, has to be passed along. Uh there's a myth out there, Scott, we can't pass Everything along because we're bound to contracts. The other thing, it happens. The real problem, Scott, it's happening so fast. It's that was my next up. point.
1: That was my uh, next you know, point, Ron, is that it, it's not like it goes up once and that's it. It's going up several times a week.
9: Yes, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a comparison. We used to be able to hold our rates annually. If you called up, we'd hold the rate annually, and it would mm-hmm. adjust the next year by consumer price index, which was around 2%. Now, for the consumer, we can only hold the price for 48 hours. If you could ever wow. imagine that
1: happening, man, it's uh, so how challenging is it for you, you know, and this would be anybody with, with a fleet of vehicles, how difficult is it for you to manage your costs compared to what you're bringing in, especially, like you said, with the, the frequency of these increases?
9: It's hard to plan. And it's hard to collect as fast as you need to collect. The oil companies prefer, uh, and and it's not their fault, but they prefer you pay every seven days. And, Scott, in doing your planning, it's almost impossible by the time you truck the freight, bill the freight, rate the freight, do everything that you have to do to collect that amount of money in seven days. So it's it's creating all kinds of challenges. And the other thing, too, I'll, I'll say a couple of things that will probably inflame some of your audience, but you know, in Canada, we drive cars and, and our employees, our drivers, all of our employees have to come to work. And in the last year, it's cost them double in the price of gas just to get to work. Because simply, Scott, you can't work remote in the trucking industry. You can't (laughs) drive a truck working remote from home. So this is another problem, and, and, and of course, the, the timing, Scott, of the yeah. carbon tax. You know, uh, since January 1st, I understand there's an additional tax of about $0.12 cents a liter, and um, say it, what it is, but that's also uh, uh, creates many more challenges for us.
1: Priorities are obviously changing. Where we used to talk last election before a pandemic, it was all about social issues, saving the world, what have you. Now it's very much kitchen table issues, uh, housing, affordability, uh, inflation, what have you. You've been around here for a while. Do you think that this will change Canada's energy policy because clearly it, it's for some reason we've got this idea it's all or nothing we've shut off the taps we've ignored the uh, the Canadian uh, energy industry and now with the war in Ukraine we're seeing the results of this uh, has this changed policy in the sense that we realize you can't shut things off. We can't send turbines and, and, and solar panels to Europe. That's not going to help them. This is going to require a mix of all of the energy to get us through this. Will this change the people in Ottawa's thinking, do you think, Ron? I think it will,
9: but the problem is, Scott,
1: uh, governments
9: don't move th- at the same pace as the private sector. It will yeah. ultimately change, but you see, Scott, you've heard me on this show before. In the private sector, we do in 12 hours what they take in 12 months to do. Yeah. In, in in the government. Ultimately, you will see a change because we have such a built-up of, of, of reserves. And, and kudos to government and everybody, the work they've done in public transit. But as I said earlier, in Canada, we still drive cars, and it still costs a lot of money to drive cars, and that's how we get to work. So let's hope there is a change. And believe me, we in the trucking industry... We are conscious of the environment. We are very conscious of emissions controls and so on. Because when I got into the trucking business, we were getting two miles to the gallon on fuel. Now we're getting eight and a half miles to the gallon on fuel. So we're very conscious of the environment, emissions controls, and so on. But there has to be a change in the thinking at the federal government level. This carbon tax really came at a difficult time when we already had many challenges in our industry.
1: All right, uh, real quick, we'll change gears real quick. I've only got a few seconds left, a minute left, but you were talking last time you were here about hanging out with Max Kerman from the Arkells and you had some big basketball announcement. Uh, we were talking earlier on to Narendra Nan about what is happening uh, with the basketball court and such. Uh, your thoughts on this as you see it slowly come to fruition.
9: Jason Farr and Max and I am putting this plan together for a year, and we promised you on the Scott Thompson show that the Arkells will put out a detailed announcement about one week before the rally. So, and I will tell you this, I'm glad we've settled on Woodlands Park because it has special importance to the Foxcroft family. In 1967, August 24th, I was umpiring a baseball game at Woodlands Park. I left there And my son Dave was born August 24th, 1967. Dave, number 30 in the CFL. Woodlands Park has great significance for the Foxcroft family. And kudos to Jason Farr and Max Kerman for putting this initiative together. And we're going to have a detailed announcement, as
1: promised, Scott, on the Scott Thompson Show a week before the rally. I thought you were going to go into another story about a pea that stuck in a whistle there, but no, it was about a child being born. Congratulations. There you go. (laughs)
9: Absolutely. And I I got $5 for that game, Scott, because I was desperate for $5 before I went to the hospital and watched Dave be born.
1: There you go. Another story from Ron Foxcroft, Fox 40 World, and, uh, of course, Fluke Transport, talking about the impact of high gas prices on the trucking industry. Ron, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Scott Radley joining us, uh, host of the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also re- uh, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Boy, Scott, uh, tw- 222.9 a liter of gas in Vancouver, uh, going up again. You know, I think the issue, everybody expects gas prices to go up or whatever, but the issue here is they're going up several times a week, and they're going up by, you know, huge increases uh, uh, each time. Do you think this is going to change uh, any energy policy do you think this is going to change the way we think of this because clearly we have sh- you know we've canceled the canadian energy industry a little too early let me get that for you clearly we've we've canceled this industry way too early germany on the cutting edge of renewables you know they're they're sucking off the teat of russia uh, they're doing the best they can like at the end of the day have we shut something off before we've found the alternative and do we really realize it's all about renewables because it's going to be a mixed bag for as long as i can see at least 50 years
10: i can see i can see no reason to think that we're going to see a policy change because you have to believe based on what they've said and what policies they brought in that the federal government is absolutely delighted with this they couldn't be happier with the fact that nobody wants to drive anymore and nobody wants to heat their house and nobody wants to do whatever else. Well what I,
1: think what, what what other, I think they do. I think they do want other. to do all that. It's just Possibly they can't. Draw, Scott. <laughs> I as I interrupted you there, I realized you were pulling me down the garden path, so I'll stop and fall in the mud now. Yeah, so have we have we did we screw this up? Have, have we, did we make the wrong call here way too early? And again, it's all about shutting off the tap as opposed to using a mix. Any energy expert will tell you it'll be a mix of fossil fuel and renewable, and we all want to get there. But man, we can't we can't pray for something that doesn't exist right now.
10: Well, again, let me answer that question by saying this. In what other industry would you do something like this? Let's take food for a second. Now, I know food and oil are not the same thing. But if we were sufficient on our own food, would do you think anybody would have said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop all the stuff that we make and we're going to try and raise the prices through the roof. And you know what? We'll figure it out on the fly. And, and go down any other path. And we wouldn't do this. Now, again, I think the federal government is very delighted by this because it's going to discourage people from driving. It's going to discourage people from buying trucks. It's going to discourage people from doing whatever, and they would hope, I'm sure, that what this is going to do is encourage all the other industries to hurry up because there's now a crisis. But,
1: but as Ron Foxcroft said, we've all got to still get from point A to point B. I yep. mean, we've still all, like yes. Germany, who's the cutting edge on all of this, they're still depending on Russia.
10: I didn't say I agreed with it. I'm telling <laughs> you what I think the federal government thinks. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's it, it, what it's doing, especially when you look at other inflation And the cost of food and the cost of housing and the cost of this and the cost of that, it's all, it's the worst possible time for something like this. But I go back to my point, which is of all those other things that are going up, I think the federal government is paying lip service to any concern about this. I think they are absolutely thrilled with the way this is going.
1: Interesting. Um, do you think environmentalists are responsible for the housing shortage? Because, again, I can remember 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we're not interested in building anything where we have to stop urban sprawl, stop urban sprawl, stop urban sprawl. But again, just like stopping fuel, the alternatives, the, the what's supposed to be replacing it is not there. So are the environmentalists hold a bit of responsibility here for the lack of housing right now?
10: Uh, I, you know what, I'm not going to put the blame entirely on, on environmentalists for this. That, that that certainly is a part of it, the sprawl thing. But let me throw another thing at you, which has been driving me nuts for a long time about this now, Scott, is that here in the city of Hamilton, we said no more urban sprawl. City Council bought into that and said we're not yep. going to do it. But I've read numerous stories in The Spectator, and I've heard of other ones, where developers want to build a new apartment or a condo tower or something, or build something nope. on the waterfront, or build nope. a building in a neighborhood and now everyone says well you can't do that here it's yeah. going to ruin the the look it's going to ruin the culture of our community yeah. it's going to ruin the feel the character well look you got to do one or the other you've either got to well you do both small, or we're going to build up and if we build up it might be in your neighborhood next to you you can't say no out and no up and then scream that we don't have enough housing
1: I think, like energy, it's a mix of both. I mean, there is, you know, but again, the extremists don't want a mix of anything. They want their idea and not the other guys.
10: That's right, but again, I go back to my point. If someone then, if you you have argued against Sprawl, and that's fine, I don't mind that you have that opinion. I think Mm -hmm. you're fully entitled to your opinion. But if you've argued against that, and someone now wants to build a fourplex next door to you or an apartment building in your neighborhood or something else, I don't think you have the right then to say, no, you can't build it here, because that is the only other option.
1: Scott Radley with us coming up after the 6 o'clock news for the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen
2: to the show live, weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online
0: at 900CHML.com.
1: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two, oh no, just one Will today, a Will and a Ben today. And in the newsroom, Diana and Dave, as always, and thank you. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, and Ben will read it this time. Your last word. Veronica says, we're
0: never getting off of oil. We need grease, we need lube, we need plastic. Renewable materials need materials that come from oil. The plastic, for example, is a ne- it's a wonderful example. What are you gonna do then?